Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. And I'm recording this on Check's Watch, February 21st, 2018, uh, from my office at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, the support, uh, supporting patron of this podcast, uh, an oncology pharmacy podcast. Uh, as I've said, I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor here at the Gatton College of Pharmacy. And today we're going to talk about some updates, um, uh, mostly in renal cell carcinoma, thanks to ASCO's genitourinary uh, symposium or conference that happened last weekend. Uh, so we're going to run through a little bit about renal cell carcinoma, uh, uh, some of the background studies that get us to, to this weekend. And um, if I asked you to name all the tyrosine kinase inhibitors you could use for renal cell carcinoma, it would probably take you a bit of time to get to axitinib unless, you know, you went in alphabetical order, in which case you'd get there pretty quickly. Um, this is <clears throat> a disease that's been uh, interesting to follow uh, how treatment recommendations have changed as the drugs have come out. So initially back in uh, 2006, 2005, er, you know, area, we get uh, sunitinib and serafinib, uh, a little bit later, so sunitinib's kind of been, you know, the drug of choice uh, for renal cell carcinoma that's metastatic um, or recurrent following uh, resection and nephrectomy. Uh, then 2007, you know, we get this Timsorolimus study uh, where Timsorolimus has an overall survival in those with a very poor prognosis in the poor prognosis category uh, compared to interferon, which you don't use a whole lot. Uh, and then there's a sunitinib versus pizopinib study in the first-line setting that says pizopinib is better tolerated. They kind of are, are considered equivalent. Uh, and that's kind of where we are. Uh, and so for a while, we knew that you did a TKI. And then afterwards, like, well, I guess we do a different TKI, or maybe we switch to an mTOR inhibitor. For a long time, patients would just do um, TKI, then switch to mTOR inhibitor, the, the, uh, the presumption being that if you, had, if you failed a TKI, that you were resistant to, you know, VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibition, so you should try a different mechanism of action being an mTOR inhibitor. Well, there is a study that compared sequential TKI treatment to, um, to TKI followed by mTOR, and TKI followed by a different TKI was superior to TKI followed by the mTOR inhibitor Everolimus. And at that, and that, <clears throat> that study kind of illustrates one of the, um, I guess one of the challenges in, in treating a disease state like renal cell carcinoma where we have lots and lots of drugs that have come out in the last decade and we don't know uh, maybe which drugs are preferred and which drugs are preferred uh, in the right sequence. So for a long time people were treating this disease state incorrectly in many people's eyes by going to TKI to mTOR inhibitor instead of TKI followed by TKI. Now we get immunotherapy coming into play here. And immunotherapy has a long history in renal cell carcinoma as it does in melanoma in the likes of interferon uh, alpha, IL-2, and those select patients from, from way back in the day. <coughs> so that's kind of, you know, now we're in this area, era, we're pretty used to using TKIs in renal cell carcinoma patients. And now we're getting immunotherapy and thinking maybe the best thing is going to be a combination of immunotherapy and a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Uh, well, the first study that kind of looked at this that made a lot of noise was Emotion uh, 151. And this was a tizolizumab, PD-L1 inhibitor, and bevacizumab, a VEGF monoclonal antibody, not a VEGF TKI, compared to sunitinib, you know, the standard comparator arm for first-line treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Uh, and these were all risk patients. This was, I think, at ASCO in 2018. There was a progression-free survival benefit 
for the dual combination group, but overall survival wasn't presented. And they had 15 months of follow-up, so a little bit early, but not super early, uh, and had not yet shown an overall survival benefit. Uh, and then a study that made a lot of waves uh, we discussed on this podcast was Checkmate 214. This was published in March of 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was looking at patients with nivolumab and ipilimumab versus sudanitinib alone. And uh, long story short, what they found is that the combination of nevo and ipi was better than sudanitinib in those patients with an intermediate prognosis or poor prognosis. However, those with a favorable prognosis did numerically better with sunitinib and didn't have any benefit from uh, dual immunotherapy. And just to give you some of the numbers here, they had a median follow-up of 25 months when they published this, so quite a long follow-up here. Um, so in just the intermediate and poor risk patients, you had uh, 12-month overall survival of 80% versus 72%, and 18-month overall survival of 75% with Nevo and Ipi compared to 60% with sunitinib. And this established Nevo and Sunitinib is, for a lot of people, for those patients who could tolerate it, because it's pretty toxic, uh, as the preferred regimen for first-line treatment of renal cell carcinoma for those who had poor or intermediate risk. I mentioned risk assessment quite a bit, so let's review the risk category. There are two you know, uh, scales, I guess you could use. The IMDC risk, um, which looks at uh, six variables and you get a score of one to six based on how many you have. And those variables are, are Karnofsky performance status of 70% or less, uh, time to diagnosis or METS of a year or longer, anemia, hypercalcemia, an increase above normal of your absolute neutrophil count, or an increase above normal of your LDH. So that's six criteria. Uh, if you have none of those, you're, it's favorable risk. One or two of those is intermediate risk, and poor is three to six. Now this is slightly different from what I'm more familiar with, which is the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center criteria, which looks at five variables, Karnofsky performance status, time to diagnosis um, uh, from nephrectomy, or time to metastasis, either from nephrectomy or from diagnosis of one year, anemia, hypercalcemia, and then a hot and elevated LDH, I think one and a half times the upper limit of normal, which replaces the, the two blood count things. So there's a lot of similarity between those uh, those risk categories, and if you look at clinical trials um, that look at both of those, IMDC and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, you get about the same numbers, uh, you know, in, the, in each risk category. So we had nivolumab and ipi, kind of the, you know, was the superior group, and, and maybe those who were favorable, you would just do a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, sunitinib or pizopinib, which was slightly better tolerated. Well, this past weekend, the drug axitinib <clears throat> had a big weekend. Uh, so two big uh, studies presented at ASCO-GU, two publications in the New England Journal of Medicine, one of which we're going to get into with some specificity, and that's Keynote 426, which uh, was published over the weekend in the New, the New England Journal of Medicine. So question one, why did they do? Well, let me tell you what the study was. Silly John. Uh, Pembrolizumab plus exitinib versus sudanitinib for advanced renal cell carcinoma. So first question, why axitinib? Why not combi combine pembrolizumab with nivolumab or pizopinib since those were, you know, the first-line options that we used, and this is first-line setting? Great question. Well, that was studied, uh, not with pembro, but nivolumab with sunitinib and pizopinib. There was a phase one study, uh, and this was published in BMC's Journal of Immunotherapy Cancer in 2018. It's Checkmate, Checkmate 16. Just one Checkmate. Checkmate 16 was the study. Uh, and they found that this combination was too toxic. 
82% uh, of folks in the nivolumab plus sunitinib group had grade three or four toxicity. So four out of every five patients had, a, you know, a, a toxicity that generally would require hospitalization. If you think of grade three as hospitalization, 70% uh, in the nivolumab plus pazopinib group had a grade three or four toxicity. Many of these worse, uh, very worrisome, were hepatotoxicity, so increases in ALT and AST as well as fatigue. And there is precedent for that in the melanoma literature when ipilimumab was first combined with, say, uh, dabrafenib or venurafenib. I think it was venurafenib. Uh, there was a, you know, a letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine about a phase one study being stopped because of unacceptable hepatic toxicity when combining immunotherapy with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Makes sense, two drugs that can cause hepatic toxicity, combine them together, uh, maybe you get a little... Um, bad synergy as far as toxicity. So that's why axitinib was chosen here. So it's Pembro plus axitinib versus standard first-line option sunitinib. Uh, they get about a thousand patients in this study, which is about what you had in, uh, in Checkmate 214, uh, although the big analysis in Checkmate 214 is less than a thousand because they removed those that had favorable risk in the big publication. Now, they show an overall survival benefit of Pembro plus axitinib versus sunitinib with only a median follow-up of 12.8 months. So in just a year, they're able to see an overall survival benefit. That's kind of the big picture with the study. Let's look at some of the, some of the details. So notable exclusion criteria, as you would expect for any study with immunotherapy, is going to be somebody with active autoimmune disease. Uh, because of the TKIs, anything that inhibits VEGF activity can cause hypertension, patients with uncontrolled hypertension were excluded. What's uncontrolled? A systolic blood pressure above 150, or diastolic above 90, which is a fairly low bar in my opinion. Uh, other exclusion criteria I'll mention is anybody with an ischemic cardiovascular event. So Pembro was given usual dose 200 milligrams every three weeks for up to th a maximum of 35 cycles, which is basically two years. And then axitinib is is a little bit odd in the dosing as a TKI, <clears throat> although it makes a lot of sense when you think about how many dose reductions we have with our tyrosine kinase inhibitors for renal cell carcinoma. I'm looking at you, cabozantinib. Uh, the starting dose is five milligrams twice a day, and then if patients tolerate it really well, there are criteria to increase to seven and 10. Likewise, there are criteria to reduce the dose to three or two milligrams based on toxicity. Uh, and that would be continuous dosing. And then the sunitinib is the dose we're familiar with, 50 milligrams. Uh, daily for a four weeks and then a, uh, two weeks off. So four weeks of a six-week cycle. There were dual primary endpoints of the study, so progression-free survival and overall survival. They got to do some alpha spending to do that. Uh, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know the specifics of this, but I will point out, because we've seen this in lung cancer, that looking at PD-L1 expression is different in how they assess it with each of these immunotherapy drugs. So for this study in Pembro, they use the uh, PD-L1 IHC 22C3 PharmDX assay by Agilent Technologies, which counts the number of PDL1 cells that could be tumor cells, lymphocytes, macrophages, and divides by the total number of cells in the tumor multiplied by 100, which sounds tedious to calculate. 55% uh, of patients, roughly 56%, if you look at both arms of this study, had intermediate prognostic risk by IMDC. Only 13-12% poor risk. Uh, and 60% of the patients had a PDL1 uh, score of more, a, a positive PDL1 score of more than one uh, in about 60% of patients. So about 60-40 split PDL1 positive, PDL1 negative if you look at a score of one of being positive. 
So again, median follow-up of 12 months, we see an overall survival benefit, uh, hazard ratio of 0.53, that's statistically significant. Uh, the 12 month absolute overall survival rate was 89.9% with Pembro plus exit versus 78.3%. So um, you get you know more than a 10% absolute uh, benefit or increase in overall survival in just a year. And those, the Kaplan-Meier curves for overall survival are expanding from months say six to 12, so they're widening, suggesting that maybe there's even more benefit to come. <clears throat> now these numbers in overall survival are higher than what we see in Checkmate 214, and that's a, always dangerous to make cross uh, trial comparisons. Uh, but kind of in line with that eight to 10% absolute increase in overall survival. Remember in Checkmate 214, the combo immunotherapy group, which was the only group that had immunotherapy, remember that was compared to just a single agent sunitinib. The overall survival benefit was limited to those at the greatest risk of disease progression death, those with intermediate and poor risk disease. Uh, in this study, we see a similar trend. We do see uh, what looks to be benefit in all subgroups. Now, there weren't a ton in the favorable group, but if you look at uh, the subgroup plot, uh, you know, the hazard ratios here. And again, a smaller hazard ratio is more benefit of the Pembro plus exitinib group. So for favorable, 0.64, for intermediate, 0.53, and for poor, 0.43. Now these are subgroup analyses. You can't really take a whole lot from this, but uh, you could generate a hypothesis that the poor risk you have, the more benefit you would derive from immunotherapy, whether it's Nevo plus Ipi in Checkmate 214 or Pembro plus exitinib uh, in this study uh, that we're talking about right now, Keynote 426. Now, as you might expect, two drugs was more toxic than one drug. Um, and uh, before I get to the toxicity, PFS curves, uh, similar benefit as you see, same uh, you know, degree of benefit, uh, kind of trending towards more benefit at the poor risk subgroups. Uh, response rate is 60% versus 35%, so twice as many people roughly had a response in Pembro plus Exitinib. 6% complete response rate versus 3%, looking at those who had disease um, basically eliminated for a period of time. <clears throat> looking at toxicity, uh, remember that phase one study of Nevo plus Sudnitinib uh, had an 80% rate of grade uh, three and four toxicity. Here, we're at 75.8%. So whereas that study was deemed too toxic, this study basically had the same percentage of grade three, four, or five toxicity. There are actually 11 deaths in the Pembro axitinib arm uh, and 15 deaths in the sunitinib arm. So more people actually died in the sunitinib arm from drug from suspected drug-related toxicity. Uh, diarrhea was the most common side effect, numerically more uh, in the combination group. Same thing for hypothyroidism. Um, now more hand-foot with sunitinib than with Pembro and Exitnip, which is which is good, uh, but the big di the big side effect difference here is the the LFT increases. So you're looking at you know uh, you know a grade three toxicity uh, increase in AST and ALT in two to three percent with Sunitnip versus up to thirteen percent uh, with Pembro and Exitnip. Fifteen uh, percent of the people in Sunitnip had any increase in their LFTs uh, versus twenty six percent in the combination arm. Uh, the biggest disparity in toxicity, though, was dysphonia, or a change in voice. So 25% of patients, one in four in pembroaxitinib, had a change in their voice compared to 3% with sunitinib. So if you, if you see somebody uh, doing some oral chemo counseling on axitinib and on his pembro arm, you know, you do that four times, statistically one of those four patients is going to have a change in their voice from this. Um, 
so maybe it's not surprising to see that increase in LFT and uh, the, the hepatotoxicity from this combination regimen because there was definitely that safety signal from the Nevo plus Sunitnib, Nevo plus Pazopanib study. What was a little bit surprising to the investigators was that in the Pembrolizumab, almost 13%, 12.8% of patients had hyperthyroidism. We're all used to seeing hypothyroidism, but that was a, that's a pretty high incidence of hyperthyroidism. Uh, and then consistent with sunitinib toxicity, there was more thrombocytopenia and neutropenia in sunitinib compared to the axitinib and pembro arm. Sunitinib gets a little bit of FLT3 inhibition. FLT3 is a really important kinase, uh, as we know from AML, um, where it's mutated, but just uh, wild-type FLT3 is very important for hematopoiesis. So it makes sense that if sunitinib inhibits FLT3, it have some uh, hematologic toxicity. And as... Uh, a quick humble brag, if you want to know more about that, there's a wonderful case report written by, uh, by the voice you're hearing now um, about early sunitinib toxicity in a patient, uh, early myelotoxicity from sunitinib in a patient with a uh, 3 or 4 polymorphism. So the article ends by saying hepatotoxic effects of Pembro plus exitinib require further examination, but the overall frequency of toxic effects was similar in the two groups. Uh, the benefit of Pembro plus Exitinib was observed across all IMDC prognostic risk categories and in both PDL1 expression subgroups. I didn't mention that. It's a big conversation in lung cancer data is PDL1 negative, PDL1 positive, who does better? And here there was absolutely no hint of difference really between PDL1 positive or PDL1 negative uh, as far as benefit in the Pembro group. Um, so that was um, Checkmate 426. And then we had Javelin Renal 101, which is Velumab plus Exitinib versus Sunitinib. Boy, Sunitinib is just like that number one team in college basketball that just everyone gets their best shot. Like everyone's going up against Sunitinib here. Um, now, this study I won't spend as much time on. Uh, they showed a progression-free survival benefit with a Velumab Exitinib compared to Sunitinib, but not an overall survival benefit. And they had... Uh, you know, a fairly they had a, you know at least a median uh, follow-up that was as long as uh, Checkmate 426, um, and I'll mention that uh, with the Velumab they used Ventana PDL1 SP263 assay by Ventana Medical System. So again, they're looking at PDL1 in a little bit different way. Um, uh, so Axitinib, two big studies, two big publications. One of which is more exciting, of course, uh, the one showing an overall survival benefit. Um, but the toxicity, toxicity outcomes we saw with the Velumab plus Exitinib, uh, largely similar to what we saw with Pembrolizumab plus Exitinib. Maybe a little bit less toxicity, but hard to make that comparison. All right, so you know, shifting to uh, another big study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that was presented at ASCOGU. Um, I don't know if it's a big study, but it made it into the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, but this is darolutamide in non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. This is the same indication that got apalutamide on the market. It's a Me Too study. It's compared to placebo. I, you know, we're not going to learn a whole lot from this. But what I will say is, you know, based on this study, uh, you know, they, they show, a, you know, a, you know, if you look at these Kaplan-Meier curves, they're huge, but it's compared to placebo, so that's not necessarily surprising. Um, so, very similar say to apalutamide, you would guess that this drug is going to get FDA approved at some point. Would make it the third drug in this class of these, you know, most recent generation an androgen antagonists. Uh, enzalutamide, the first one, then apalutamide, and then this would be the third uh, darolutamide. Um, 
And what I worry about with these drugs are drug interactions. So one of the great things to do, and I, if you're a, like I say, a, a PGY-1 resident right now and you know you're doing a PGY-2 in oncology, or you're a PGY-2 oncology resident, or you're just really interested in the biology of cancer and how these drugs are used and studied, go to this paper uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine and look at the supplementary appendix, and you can see the drug's protocol. Uh, this is what the investigators would have had when they're deciding to, to put the, the study through the IRB or to, to open the study at their, at their uh, clinical sites. Uh, tons of information uh, from the drug company who's developing uh, darolutamide. Now, some of it's blacked out for proprietary reasons, um, but you do see some of the early um, preclinical research described here. So here's some things that caught my eye specific to drug interactions, since this is an oncology pharmacy podcast. Uh, so it's a BCRP inhibitor breast cancer resistance protein. Um, so there was a study where patients were taking darolutamide, and they were given a single 5 milligram dose of rosuvastatin after taking darolutamide for a few days. And the area under the curve of rosuvastatin increased fivefold which probably causes some muscle pain, I would guess. Um, and then uh, the protocol mentions other potential breast cancer-resistant um, protein substrates that could also have the same sort of drug interaction, would be methotrexate, fluvastatin, and atorvastatin. So there are three statins, potentially one, uh, you can almost say for sure, rosuvastatin is going to have this interaction. That's a little bit worrisome because these are older men with prostate cancer. Um, they usually live for a decent period of time, so stats can be important uh, in those patients. And similar to apalutamide and enzalutamide, this drug looks to be a 3A4 inhibitor. Uh, in the case of enzalutamide and apalutamide, it's, they are very potent 3A4 inhibitors. Think rifampin, think phenytoin, think phenobarbital and carmazepine, the drugs that really are going to cause a red flag anytime you see those on a, a medication profile. But it does suggest that it is a, an in vitro inducer, or an inducer based on in vitro data, uh, something that um, was not looked to be controlled for in, in the study. Uh, if you look at some of the cardiovascular outcomes, they look okay, uh, unlike with uh, one of the apalutamide studies or enzalutamide studies. So uh, those are some updates uh, if you're new to the podcast, this is kind of what we do. Uh, last week, we did a landmark clinical trial. Uh, this week, we're going over some recent clinical trials that came out to help keep you up to speed with what's happening in the world of, of oncology and drug use in cancer patients. And um, that's kind of what we do. And we'll, we'll talk about some old standby, old classic drugs as well, our foundations of oncology pharmacy series. We'll revisit that too um, in the coming weeks. But that's all that I have for today, so thank you for listening. I really appreciate uh, your support. Uh, feel free to uh, rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. You can find it in all those uh, platforms, wherever you get good podcasts, as I guess they would say. Um, if you have topics or ideas or suggestions, things you'd like to hear about, feel free to you know find my email, uh, tag me on Twitter, where you can follow me at FarmDeetNip. You can follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod, or you can find us on Instagram uh, under the handle OncoFarmPod. Let us know what you want to hear about, and until I see or hear you again, remember, doses matter. Doses matter.